Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. My guest today in snowy Connecticut, ESPN analyst Tim Legler. We talk about James Harden, the Rockets, Warriors, and the emergence in modern basketball of the three-point shot, which really Tim Legler was at the beginning of in his career in the 80s into the early 90s in the NBA, and how that shot has evolved, revolutionized the game, and the role it played in turning Tim Legler from a player bouncing around the minor leagues, undrafted out of LaSalle, into a legitimate NBA player. And we talk about Legs' intrigue with coaching at the college level and his belief of what he's got to offer to a Division One school and players. We get into all of that and more. So let's get to my visit with Tim Legler. Here at the ESPN studios in Bristol with Tim Legler as we get ready to barricade ourselves in here for another blizzard on the way. Tim, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I got to fly out of here tomorrow, so I'm hoping it's not too bad tonight with the snow. I know we got a bunch at home where I'm flying to in Philly. We were just talking about that Portland-Houston game from Wednesday night, and Mike D'Antoni said something yesterday, and listen, you talk about your own player, and you pump up your own guy, and you always want your guy to believe, I believe you're the best. And D'Antoni, who as authorities on offensive players, as an offensive, the mind he has and, and what he's done for the game offensively, when he says James Harden is the best offensive player he's ever seen, and you start to think about Harden and what he has become and how he scores and the way pound for pound and at his size and how he plays, is there a case to be made for him? There is. There is. And if I had heard that statement in the off season, I might have said, come on now, let's let's pump the brakes on that. Because even the decade I played in the league in the 90s, they had a guy named Michael Jordan that I played against. It's all close and personal. you got guys like Kobe Bryant, you know. And so you, you might say, wait a second. But now, based on what he has done this year, I think there's a legitimate claim to it. Because I have never seen a player in the history of this league dominate a game with the live dribble the way that James Harden does. Because if you even think about some of the guys I just mentioned, and we can go down the list of great scorers, most of those guys did it much quicker when they caught the ball. It was one or two dribbles to a pull-up, or they were at the rim, or a catch-and-shoot three. You think about what James Harden does and the amount of dribbling he does in the course of a game, and teams find it completely impossible to take it out of his hands or to limit him in any way, and they try every combination of defensive strategies on him every single night. And it doesn't matter what he gets in front of him. He finds a way to get what he wants with a live dribble. That's a really hard thing to pull off. And so there is a case to be made that very few players have ever dominated the game and controlled the game offensively the way that James Harden is this year. And easily, and like as you described, it's like the most unique. And it, it's always amazing. You think like you feel like sometimes somebody can't come along. Like we've just seen it all. Like how can someone – just do it so differently and dominate. And Steph Curry came in in a way no one else had and dominated. And now you're seeing Harden at the height of his talent. This is the apex. This is a great player in his prime who's now surrounded with the best team he's had. And so, and a coach with a system, a style, like this is optimum. Like, and if you're James Harden, you know, you look at what Houston's done for him organizationally and getting Chris Paul and hiring Mike D'Antoni. 
you know, there were people who thought, well, you know, he got to Houston and he got his money and you think, would there be one more move for him? Did he have to go somewhere else? And what a boon to his career for how they've just put it all together around him. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, and he found the perfect spot. I call it basketball nirvana for James Harden. Not only going to Houston and getting his own team, which, you know, Oklahoma City still gets beat up for, for letting him go. And I, and I say all the time, there's no way they were keeping a guy like James Harden with those other two guys. He wanted his own franchise. He thought he was good enough to do it. He's clearly delivered on that. But then the other component was getting a coach like Mike D'Antoni to, to buy into giving him the ball right off the bat because he said he was going to make him a point guard. I remember that first training camp and people laughed at that just like they did with Philly and Ben Simmons. You're like, no, he's not going to play point. You're saying he's going to be a primary ball handler, not the point guard. Well, he is the point guard of that team. We didn't think he could do it. So D'Antoni was smart enough to figure out this will work. Get him a high ball screen or ISO, get three shooters on the floor, and we got something special. And and he's it's been unbelievable what it has done for his game and his profile in the league. He's going to clearly be the MVP this year. He won't be unanimous, but I think he's going to get 75 80% of the first-place votes. Um, I think it's a runaway. Yeah. And he's been that good, and it's leading to wins as well. And finally, in the last three years, we had like a legitimate, viable threat in the Western Conference to the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, and I'd kind of always felt with the Warriors, and I think I still do. The Warriors at their best is better than everybody else's best. Yeah. But if the Warriors are off or there's an injury, they still were better than everybody else. Not now. That Houston, if they're not at their best, Houston can beat them. And if they're not at their best, I don't think there's anybody else who can. I think they could still be. But can Houston play them straight up, Warriors healthy, you know, ready to go, you know, seven-game series in, in June in the conference finals when, you know, other guys are back? Are the Rockets right there with them regardless? They're right there, but my money would be on Golden State. Yeah. And I look at it from this standpoint. When you play Houston, now you've you got to have a very specific personnel combination you can put out there defensively. Only Golden State has that in the West, which is four different guys that have the speed, lateral quickness, and enough size that they can switch a lot of stuff, get away with it, and still make guys have to make difficult shots. Nobody else has that defensive personnel package that Golden State has. Now you're talking about playing a team that literally runs one set the entire game. Middle of the floor ball screen or ISO, and then play off of that, the greatness of James Harden and then Chris Paul as well. So you're talking about making adjustments in a two-week period over seven games with a very good defensive team to lock in on one particular thing, and what do you want to do with that, and how can you tweak it? And do you start to take it out of his hands and force P.J. Tucker and Bamute to make shots, and you stick with that and see if they can do it for 48 minutes, as opposed to what Houston's going to have to do defensively, which is – account for where the ball goes because Golden State moves it through the air better than anyone in the league and it ends up in the hands of somebody that's one of the best shooters we've ever seen. So there's a randomness to their offense that makes it more difficult to adjust to game to game in a series as opposed to Houston. You know where the ball's going to be. You know who's going to have it. So now you can sit there and tweak your personnel and tweak your coverages to see if you can make that just less efficient enough that you can win that series and win some close games. I think it's going to be a more difficult proposition for Houston to do that to Golden State. Yeah, and I think what will be interesting with Houston is and when they get into that big moment and that big series, you know, Chris Paul and James Harden have had these moments that have stuck with them because they haven't won it all. I'm not sure either of them ever has been on the best team. That I don't look at a season where I say, geez, their team should have won. We can make the case, maybe those Clipper teams, there were times they could have advanced, but usually injuries. But 
how it ended for Harden last year against the Spurs when he just disappears down the stretch in an elimination game. You know, Chris has had moments. He's had some moment of truth endings in the playoffs that have haunted him a little bit. I Listen, I'm not a big believer in, like, typically guys like that break through. Talents like that who are knocking at the door, who are as committed as those guys are, they usually break through. But I do wonder against the Golden State team, because that'll be talked about. They'll get to that game six or game seven, and they're going to have to answer questions about that for a few days. They're going to see the highlights, and they'll hear it. And you got a Golden State team of guys who are all champions. They've all done it. I'll be interested to see if that narrative factors into a series with those guys. Yeah, well, no doubt. And look, I'm, you know, I'll be the first to tell you, it's hard for me to get the image of the way James Harden's season ended out of my head. And looking at Mike D'Antoni, I'll never forget it. At halftime of that game, he had come out of the locker room. The guys were out there warming up again. At that point, Harden, he took his first shot 15 minutes into the game. <laughs> he was a complete no-show. Not just playing poorly. Didn't show up. Right. Wasn't engaged. Wasn't aggressive. Looked like he didn't want any part of it. And Mike D'Antoni was sitting on the bench. I'll never forget. He had his, his dry erase board in his hand, and he was sort of twirling it, and he was staring off into space. And I know they were down 20 at the time. I know he's thinking to himself, you've got to be kidding me right now because we only know how to play off one guy, and he's not here tonight. What are we supposed to do? Now, now think about how far James Harden has erased a lot of that this season because of what D'Antoni said about him the other night. You think D'Antoni would have said that if you asked him that question after the last game of the right. season last year? Is James Harden the best offensive player you've ever seen? <laughs> he would have said, who's James Harden? I don't know who you're talking about. He wasn't out there tonight. So not only has he done that, he's become a runaway favorite for the MVP. So he, it's amazing the year that he's had coming off of that game and that season, the way it ended. Now he's got to see it through. That doesn't mean he's got to play great every night. But you got to look a lot more like the guy I saw last night in a game against Damian Lillard. It was a high-profile game, and he came out to destroy him in a head-to-head matchup. He took five shots in the first three minutes of the game. And I said to someone, he's going for 50 tonight. He ended up with 42, and he sat out the first six minutes of the fourth quarter. That's the James Harden that I need to see all the way through the postseason. Attack, 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 attack. And you might have some bad shooting nights. And maybe you lose one of those games. Maybe you still win because you still have Chris Paul and you have other guys. But you can't have a situation where you do not look like you want to aggressively engage the defense. That's what he has to overcome now. And the only thing that will make me think he, you know, he can get through that and erase that from my memory is, is never letting it happen again and right. getting that team past Golden State, get them into the finals. And if they get there, they're going to win a championship. But that's, that's a tall order because you still have the Warriors out there. He just can't have any more moments where he doesn't show that's that's something that I'll never forget. It was one of the most mystifying things I've ever witnessed. See a guy on that level literally not look like he showed up for the game. It was very bizarre. Um, he's erased it in a lot of people's minds, not mine. He's got to do it in the postseason every night. It, like When you look at teams like Houston now who are completely built around the three-point shot, coaches and front offices whose entire strategy – is to find as many guys as they can who can make that shot, and with players like Harden or Westbrook or you know the great talent LeBron, we've got to find shooters around them. When you think of how the league looked and coaches and front offices looked at a three-point shooter during your career and how rosters were built, do you just feel like sometimes I came in the wrong era? No, the no league wasn't about. ready for what you did. The Absolutely league, right? yeah. no question. I was born 20 years too soon. You know, I'd have a lot more money in my pocket, and uh, the game would have been a lot more favorable to me. I think about the team I played on in Washington, 
like even my best year in the league, the year I led the league in three-point shooting, we had six guys on our team, 6'10 and up, that are household names. I mean, that's how deep our front court was because that's how teams were built. You needed four or five guys to play up front. Every team had like a couple of guys that were identified as the three-point shooters. And you were had the green light, but the shot itself wasn't as prevalent. So, you know, a guy, high-volume three-point shooter, when I played, was maybe they've taken five, maybe six. Look how many guys now take five, six three-pointers in a game. There's ten of them on the court. And some of the really high-volume guys are taking ten a night. So the just acceptance of the shot is so much greater that the number of shots that I could have taken that I didn't because it wasn't considered a great look when I played, it's off the charts. So when I watch games now, obviously, yeah, I salivate. I think to myself, man, how fun would this be to have this kind of freedom? The other thing that's happened is I think the overall quality is watered down in terms of who we consider a great three-point shooter. You know, we look at guys now to shoot 38 40%. They're considered big-time three-point shooters in this league. And when I played, you had to be in the mid-40s and up. You know, the year I led the league, I was 52%. Like, that's that's what the standards were for being labeled a great shooter. I think they have come way down because every team has eight guys that take it whenever they want to. Right. So as a result, your expectation levels have lowered a little bit. Now, the top guys still shoot at really I, high I, I want to say maybe you and Steve Kerr are the only guys to shoot over 50% with that many attempts in a – from the three-point line, right? There hasn't been anybody else but you two. I know the year that I that I I know this clearly because if I had made I think two or three more that year, I would have had the all-time single-season record. Because if Kerr had it at fifty-two-three, I was fifty-two-two. Corver ended up breaking that, but yep. his attempts were way down because he missed half the year. Right, so he barely qualified to get it. Yeah, and it's you know it's different now. Like you know you shoot you shoot forty-five percent now. You're, you're going to be right there at the top of the league. Because guys take more, quicker. You know, I watched the, I watched the Sixers game the other night, and I'm like, they took five or six in a row, and none of them were great looks. <laughs> and I'm watching the game going, like, this is just an accepted part of offense now in the NBA. When you got, I believe the three-pointer entered college basketball in that, it was 86, 87 season. 1986. I will right. never forget that day. You got to college in 84. Yeah. So this was going to be your junior year? Going into my junior year. And how do you find out that this rule, like you just walk in one day and to your coach's office and he says, hey, there's a new, how'd you find out? I'll never forget it. It's like one of those moments where were you, you know, JFK and like that kind of <laughs> stuff, right? So I'm sitting in a, cause I had a, uh, had some issues with a stress fracture I was recovering from and I was in a orthopedic doctor's office at Temple University in <laughs> Philly. Then I grabbed a copy of the Philadelphia Daily News that was sitting on the coffee table. And on the back page, which is where the sports headlines are, NCAA to adopt 19-foot, 9-inch three-point line. You can imagine my excitement. Because <laughs> I was making 25-footers in high school for two points right. in my first two years at LaSalle. Like all those deep jumpers. Yeah. And they, you know, My first big five game I ever played in, I went five for five from the field at the Palestra against Temple. And all of them were 25 feet and beyond, and I had 10 points. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so – you can imagine my reaction when I see this. Not only is it coming in, it's at that distance. You got to be kidding me. So then I, you know, I obviously really accepted that the last two years at LaSalle. I think I shot around 50% from the three point line my last two years in college. And it, it changed, you know, really kind of the course of, of what I was able to do on the court and your value just rose so quickly because that, that shot started and it wasn't even incorporated at that level at that time, obviously. Over the last 30 years, it's changed a lot. But even then, your value exponentially increased because there weren't a lot of guys that could go out there to that distance and shoot a high percentage. I remember that summer, 
and we're taping this in Bristol. And I, I grew up just on the street. And there's an analyst at ESPN named Malcolm Huckabee who played at Boston College, played with Miami a little bit in Europe. His older brother Martin and I were the same age. And Martin was a year younger than me. And Martin was a great long-range shooter. And he was getting recruited by everybody in the country. And he shot from deep. And I remember some of the schools, we used to work Parks and Rec in the summer, and he would bring the big box. Everybody in the country was recruiting him. And it was at the time, it was Dr. Tom Davis at Iowa who shot the three. I want to say Patino at Providence. But guys, there were a few guys out there who were very clear in their mind. Maybe it was the summer before, but they were going to play that way. And I remember how much value he had to teams. And he had some knee injuries and ended up going to Howard. And I just remember sort of, there were only a few guys at that time who really said, hey, this is a weapon. And I would imagine even like in your lineup or when you play people, I don't know if guys, even players knew to like, it was in your psyche. That's how you played. But it, I think it took players a while to figure out like, hey, I can really separate myself oh, from other people by, by finding well, that line. Uh, I'll give you an incredible statistic. 1987 NBA Finals, Celtics-Lakers. And it was the last time they played in the finals before 2008. So we had a 21-year break before those two franchises met in the finals. So in 2008, I'm here working, covering the series, and you know, we realized they haven't played in over 20 years in the finals. Went back to the last game that they played. It was that year, 87. We replayed that game on our network. I sat in the studio. It was really cool because that's my favorite team of all yeah. time, the 80 Celtics. And the reason I bring that up is because in that game, both teams combined – to go 0 for 7 from the three-point line, okay? Not a single three made in an NBA Finals game. Now think about what the, what it looks like now. They're going to take 60 to 70 a night, whoever plays in the Finals. So, And that's not that long ago, it feels like. But, but the three-point shot had just been adopted in college. It had been around in the NBA at that point about mm-hmm. eight years. Mm-hmm. But even then, it was you were conditioned to get the ball inside, to hit cuts, mid-range, like that's what everything was based on. Even in transition, it was unfathomable to run to the three-point line right. in transition. Now you have three-on-ones and guys are flaring out to the corners rather than getting a layup or a dunk. So the mentality is just completely different. A three-point shot obviously is, is, is dominates college basketball, pro basketball. I think it makes the game a lot more exciting. I think fans love it. And, um, you know, it's, it's rare now to see a program that doesn't really incorporate that. And the teams that don't eventually are going to run into a team they can't beat. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is sponsored by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. They understand that home plays a big role in your life and family. That's why they created Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, With Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. It's convenient. Our trusted partners allow you to share your financial information with Rocket Mortgage at the touch of a button. And in addition to getting a real mortgage approval in minutes, you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you're getting the right solution for you. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Woj. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. You look at your career legs and you go undrafted out of LaSalle 
And then it's a time when there are these leagues. Now there's really just the G League, and there's not, for the most part, there's not a real other professional place to go that has a trajectory to get you into. But then you could do, and you did it all. There was USBL in the summer. There was the World Basketball League, which I believe was 6'4 and under. Yep, played that in Youngstown, Ohio. Right. Yep. There was the CBA, which is really the precursor to the D-League. And all of them full of big-time talent. And what was it like at that time to be – I'm sure all these places, like you were racing to the bank to cash your check before it bounced, right? Like to make – because like whichever guy – if you were the fifth guy to cash his check, there might not be anything left in it. Like like what was it like sort of trying to piece together a pro basketball career from like one entity to the other to the other in these – seasonal sort of pro leagues and then you'd be on to another pro league imagine just dramatically different than what we see now well it challenges your love for the game and you have to have an intense love and intense belief in yourself to go through some of that and i and i I did and i wasn't going to take no for an answer and i knew that i you know was going to keep plugging along and i was getting pulled in different directions in in my personal life with my family i had you know my, my my college girlfriend at the time who ended up being you know my first wife you know her family like, how long is he going to chase this? Like, where's this leading? Because you're not making a lot of money. So it's a matter of, are you, is he ever going to break through and, and get there? So you, you know, you just keep banging your head against the wall. And, and, and every, and it looks, some hurt more than others when I wouldn't make a team or I wouldn't stick on a 10 day. But I never, ever lost doubt. I mean, I never had doubt in myself. I always believed I was going to make it. Um, I was very fortunate in that I had a very healthy situation in the CBA. And I really think if I didn't, I may have stopped. Because I saw what was going on around the, the league, and and like you said, you know, you go to buildings, no one's there. The owners are, are not paying guys. You know, the con- living conditions that some guys had in certain cities. I had a great owner in the Omaha. Omaha Racers. Omaha Racers. A guy named Steve Eidelman owned the team. He loved hoops. Put a lot of money into it. Treated us great. We had great places to live. We had he paid us better than any team in the league. I got a guy named Mike Tebow was my head coach. Who had NBA experience, but he played a fast-paced system similar to kind of like Loyola Marymount almost, which fit me very well. So I had a really healthy situation. So I was able to stick it out there a few years and and continue to I'd get ten days or I try out for a team and it wasn't working out. And then I led the league in scoring. I made first team all league. Like I was clearly one of the best players in the league. And I now I just needed a ten day where I was actually allowed to go play and play through my mistakes. And, and that, I finally got that. And you know, people think about ten days, and they think this is this breakthrough, and you've made it. A lot of ten days are you go there. Maybe there's four games in ten days. You don't play. Maybe there's one practice. It expires. You didn't get to show anything, or you got in for one five minute stretch. Did you make a shot? Did you miss a shot? Well, that was your chance. It's not like this. It's not like in the movies where you go and you get your opportunity. You feel like you're getting your break, and then you get there and go. This really isn't an opportunity. Yeah, like like what Quinn Cook's getting right now from Golden State, who's a, on a two way contract, right. right? So he comes up because they got all these guys hurt, and he's getting to, he's starting. He's playing thirty minutes a night. He had twenty five points in right. a game. Like now, everybody's looking at Quinn Cook, saying, "Man, this guy can play." Like he might have an opportunity. You're right. A lot of the early opportunities I had weren't like that. Um, I got called up to Phoenix. My very first NBA experience. Uh, Dan Marley was a rookie. He was hurt. Jeff Hornacek was on that team. He was hurt. To call me up. I literally show up that morning. I shoot around. I don't know a single guy there. I go through shoot around. I go back to the hotel. I show up for the game. I, I sit on the bench. I don't know what's about to happen. <laughs> Cotton Fitzsimmons, head coach, legendary, just all of a sudden goes, Legler. I just hear my name. You know, I get up. Here I am headed to the scores table. I don't know a single play. 
I, you know, I don't, my head is spinning. I had 47 points the night before in a CBA game. Okay. That's where I was at. Now I'm at the table. You're ready to check in in Phoenix, not knowing what's about to happen. And I'll never forget. I mean, I did make my first shot. Kevin Johnson dribbled down, kicked it out. I hit a baseline jumper. He kind of winked at me, backpedaling on defense, but that was, I didn't get much of an opportunity. So I go back. Now they did really try to talk me into coming back that summer, but mm-hmm. I saw a better opportunity and that didn't work out. And I got to Utah, same thing. Denver, same thing. Finally, my big break was getting picked up by Dallas midseason on a really bad team. They had just made a coaching change, and the assistant coach, Gar Hurd, um, told me, met up with the team on the road, and he said, listen, I just want you to know you're going to be here the rest of the year. We believe in you, but we need to see if you can sink or swim with this league. I know you've been bouncing around, but what you're doing to CBA, like you've done enough there. Like Now we're going to play every night and see what happens. I played like 33 games maybe, 15, 18 minutes a night. I got my confidence, I got my rhythm, and I was in the league for the next eight years. We mentioned the USBL, and when I was a young reporter, that was like for me, like I would always have to try to convince my editor, can I go down to New Haven to do? Because no one, re- I don't think, really wanted to read. I wanted to write about it. I wanted to be in the gym. And there were always there were great stories in that league. The Miami Tropics were literally the NBA rehab team. John Lucas, who's you know went through it himself and became a a resource for guys who've gone through that, is to this day. His team was Chris Washburn, Richard Dumas, Roy Tarpley, I believe, may Roy have. Roy Tarpley was on that was team. Was that team, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Dwayne uh, Washington, Ken Bannister, Grant Gondrzak. The whole team was made up of guys that had had some issues. All of them had some varying levels of success in the league. I mean, Richard Dumas was, was a top 10 talent in the NBA probably at his best. Yeah. And now he's playing in the USBL. And I was in Philly. We were the two best teams in the league. We, we met each other two years in a row in the finals. It was incredible because you're talking about a court in a United States basketball league game where there were literally 10 to 12 players that had played in the NBA or would go on to play in the NBA. And the games were in like, you know, small college yeah. gym or a glorified high school gym, you know, summer. I remember in New Haven at one of those games, Jay Edwards was playing there, who had been a All American in Indiana, had I believe had substance problems, and I remember they were trying to put the tape down on the court for the three point line, and they literally had tape, and they were trying to do the circumference around the court. I think they had to make it a different distance, and it was it looked like something like on a volleyball court where somebody just laid it down. And you're going that can't work in a game, but it was makeshift. But like you said, and Dumas, Richard Dumas was. You know, he was in Phoenix. I think Jerry Colangelos would always say that back then as talented of a guy, but like, it's not a stretch to say he was an all-star. He, he was yeah. at his best. He was a legitimate, like top 10. He was an explosive wing, super athletic, Outrageous skilled, athlete. right? Yeah. Outrageous athlete. He was incredible in the open floor. He did leak out. Like that was part of his thing. And then you throw it ahead to him in half court. And he was at the rim and two dribbles. You know, he was just, one of those guys that you, no matter how many minutes you played him, he, he was going to get you 15. You played him 10 minutes, get you 15. <laughs> no question. And, um, he, and then, you know, obviously he had his, his personal demons and it, it kept him from really reaching his potential. But all of those leagues were opportunities to make a little bit of money, but more importantly, to play against elite level competition and continue to, to chase this dream. You know, scouts would come, they, they, ch- they check us all out. And then what would happen from that? You get invited to a training camp. And if you didn't make that, you'd go to the CBA or Europe. And that's, that's kind of what your options were at the time. And the World Basketball League, you mentioned, that was actually my very first professional league I ever played on right out of college. Went right to Youngstown, Ohio, played there, six, four and under. And what guys would do, they'd measure you and guys would wear 
super baggy pants, like MC Hammer pants, <laughs> and bend their knees slightly because they were 6'5". Right. To stay in the league. <laughs> That's a true story. So this is what guy, I'm, I'm 6'4", right on the nose. So this, this, is right. what, this is what we were doing. And uh, again, I played with, you know, I played Mark Wade, who was the point guard at UNLV. Yeah. Right. Chip England was on that team with me. Right. Uh, who's, named, be, who's become the preeminent shooting coach. Yeah, for with, San Antonio. With San Antonio. For forever, yeah. right. A guy named Barry Mitchell was a big time college player. Willie Bland. <laughs> you know, the number of guys can do there. And it, we won a championship in that, in that league as well. Um, but again, just kept giving you opportunities. And, I would have done it probably if those were even for free. The fact you're getting a little bit of money to pay your bills, it, it, it just allowed you to continue to get better, adapt to the pro game, play against better competition. And then what happened for me, the breakthrough for me was honestly my rookie year in the CBA when I was playing against guys like Jay Edwards and Stevie Thompson and these guys that, you know, we were in the MAC, we dominated our conference at LaSalle, but yeah. these guys were on, eight, on, you know, national television every weekend at their programs and I was watching them. Now all of a sudden I'm lined up at the jump ball circle. And I'm getting ready to go head-to-head with these guys, guys that have scored 2,500 points in the Big Ten and Stevie Thompson at Syracuse. And now you're playing, and you're like, I'm better than this guy. Literally, that's yeah. what was happening, and it transforms your confidence. And now you realize, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. I'm going to make it. It's just a matter of right opportunity. Someone, please, just value me for what I really do well and not focus so much on anything you think is my weakness. And that, to me, is the art of coaching. And that's what the great coaches in, our, in this league do now in the NBA. They find a guy and they value you for what you do well, and they consider it their job to limit your exposure to your weaknesses rather than focus on the one thing you can't right. do. And every time you do that, that you're out of the game or they think you can't play. And that's what happened to me finally. Dallas started it, but then my big breakthrough was, was Washington playing for Jimmy Lynham, who completely viewed me as a guy that could do everything on the court and wanted me on the floor always for the entire fourth quarter. And it really, that's, that's the year that I really took off and unfortunately tore my ACL pretty badly at the end of that season. What did it mean for a player like you who was fighting the stick in the league, who had been a journeyman, to win a three-point contest on All-Star Weekend? Yeah. All-Star Weekend, what's always interesting to me is these guys now, nobody wants to do it, but I always felt back in then, Everybody wasn't on TV then. And so, like, players like, say, Dominique Wilkins or if you weren't on the Celtics, Lakers, Sixers, like, going to All-Star Weekend and being in a contest, now we see everybody every night. You yeah. can watch them on your phone. There are no secrets. But back then, this was your chance for people to see who you were because a lot of the teams and players couldn't see you the rest of the year. And then you, who weren't a star, yeah. it's a whole nother layer of that. Yeah, there's no question. I took that opportunity, and I was leading the league in three-point shooting at the time when I got the invitation. So I was having a really good year. When I got the invitation to go down there and I was going to be in that competition, I viewed it as, like, this is really important to my career to go out there and validate everything that I always believed in myself and validate the year that I was having. Like, I couldn't go there and bomb in that contest. This was a national stage. It was at the Alamo Dome. So there's 50,000 people in the building, national TV. A lot of people kind of becoming familiar with me for the first time because we weren't on national TV a lot in Washington that year. So, you know, even Reggie Theus, who was doing color on the event with Danny Ainge, okay, (laughs) Reggie Theus wasn't that familiar with me. And he didn't think I had a shot to win it, even as I was progressing through the rounds. And I was, I had the highest score in every round. And he was still, I got to the finals against Dennis Scott. And he was still like, oh, yeah, I don't think he's got a shot here against Dennis Scott. <laughs> Danny Ainge knew more about me, so he was a little bit more familiar. So he was banking on me to win right. it. But I viewed that as an enormous opportunity 
to put a stamp on who I am as a player because I'm like I'm the best shooter in the world and I'm going to prove it tonight. And I did, and I, you know, I came through in a big way. And I was a little nervous beforehand because the balls were brand new; they were super slick. And I was warming up beforehand. I'm like, man, this this is crazy. They give us these rock hard balls to do this competition with. Don't they want us to like make as many as we can? <laughs> but once I started warming up, it was going in. And I was like, I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm going to be fine. And then, uh, you know, obviously, a, you know, a very memorable night. And a night that, even though I think I had a really good career, like people will point to that one defining moment. You know, that I've run into on the street. They'll remember that night. I remember watching that and watching that story, and it was good because I was a CBA guy, and my daughter was just born that week, my my first child. That was a big storyline around yeah. me that weekend. All that was going on, and then I came through and I won, and I've had a lot of people come up to me over the years, I mean, countless, and say, I'll never forget where I was that night you won that three-point shootout. So it's a cool thing, man. That trophy, I don't have a lot of memorabilia in right. my house. That trophy's there, though. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is sponsored by SeatGeek. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has never been easier thanks to SeatGeek. They've created an amazing app and website that makes ticket buying easier than it has ever been. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you never miss a deal. And more importantly, you aren't wasting time. You can even set alerts for upcoming events and they'll let you know if ticket prices fall. And even better, Every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I use it all the time because it's easy and it works. SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. You get to see the full ticket price from start to finish, and they never surprise you with big fees when you check out. And now here's the best part about SeatGeek for all of you out there listening to the Woj Pod. My listeners who make their first SeatGeek purchase get a $20 rebate. And to get it, all you have to do is download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, then enter promo code Woj, W-O-J. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It does not get any easier than that. So download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code Woj today. What kind of coaching opportunity would interest you? I know like your profile fits the kind of guy who gets into coaching. It just does. How much do you still think about that? Every day. Every day since the day I retired. The only reason I didn't go into coaching immediately when I retired at 33 was because I had two very young children. I was going through a divorce. They were five and two. They were based on the East Coast. And I know what coaching was going to mean. It was going to mean you got to go where you got to go. And you're going to be working a thousand hours a week and you might have to move and all that. And I just couldn't do that with my kids being that young. Um, so I decided first to go get my master's degree. So I went to University of Pennsylvania with the Wharton. I got my MBA while I was trying to figure out the next move. I get a call from here. I come up to ESPN and I find out what my schedule is. That means I could be a basically a full-time dad to my kids. And what I did was when my son got old enough, I just got heavily involved in the AAU circuit. And, it, and he and I did that together, and I coached him for years. And I coached, you know, there's nine kids playing college basketball as we speak that I coached over the years. I got involved with the Under Armour All-American camps, the Curry camps. I'm around elite players all summer to give me the coaching experience, to give me the, fit, the, the competitive fix I needed desperately. And I told myself, once my son gets through high school and I'm there for him as a high school student, as a player, I'm there, 
then I can go do what I need to do to chase this because this is what I want to do more than anything I've ever done in my life besides be a player trying to get to the league is be a coach at a Division One program because I know the impact that I can have. I know I can do it, and I know the impact I can have on young men and developing them as, as successful people. It's a big part of my life as an academic, as a mentor, as someone that can just you know, help them, help them in every way, in every aspect of their life. I know I can do it. And I, I, it, what frustrates me is the lack of experience term that gets thrown around because I haven't technically sat on a D1 bench. It bothers me because I've got 27 years of experience in the game at the highest level. And I, if you just talk to me for five minutes, you can see that, like, okay, this guy's got a really good feel for what's going on. I think I've got the communication skills. I clearly have the recruiting ties because of what I've done in AAU and cementing those relationships. Um, so I just want an opportunity. I think I can be a head coach at a mid-major or above. Mid-major probably ideally to start to prove myself, to prove to people I can do it. And then, you know, you see what happens from there. Um, it's a different industry, though, than it was than it would have been 20 years ago because the search firms are heavily involved and it's they're not as familiar. They're not as familiar with what I do now. They're not as familiar with – they haven't seen me. They don't listen to me. Yeah. It's a headhunting – the search type. firms, it's a racket. It's tough. No, it's, it's it's a racket. And I've interviewed with yeah. several of them, and, yeah. and it's like you come off and you feel like they're really buying in. Like clearly they're like, okay, you're not you're you're not a normal guy coming in here interviewing with no coaching experience. They can tell that by talking to me. But at the same time, they've got this list of guys that have X amount of experience, and they have their coaching tree on their resume. And I don't have that. It's hard for me to match that. So my, my, my pitch has been, and what I firmly believe in my heart, I'm not trying to take away from what any of these guys do, I am no more of a risk than a guy that is either an assistant coach for 10, 12 years that's never been a head coach because that's a different world or a guy that, say, coached at a much lower level that's trying to jump up because he's never recruited players in a league like that. He's never coached in a league like that. So that's risky too. So for me, you look at my background, my resume, the fact that I've succeeded at everything I've done, um, my track record for that. Plus the AAU stuff, which I think is really important. I, I just don't think I'm that much of a risk, but people are – it's hard to convince a search firm to put you in the mix with an athletic director because I'm just – just get me in the room and let me talk to them and let them hear my plan and vision and what I can do and what kind of a communicator I am. Because to me, when recruiting comes up, I say, well, what is recruiting? Recruiting is, one, I think you have to be credible – I mean, I have an advantage in that way because I guarantee you, if the player doesn't know me that's out there playing right now, I know the high school coach, the AAU coach, and the parents do. Mm -hmm. So you have a level of credibility that, like, this is what I did with myself as a player, and I can max out who your son is as a player. I can show him the path that it takes to work, but also, if he's good enough one day, there's not an NBA GM in the league that's not going to take my call, and if I say, come look at this kid, they're going to come because I have the credibility of being associated with the NBA for 27 years. So it's it's credibility and then it's communication. I feel like doing the job I do now is like I have a PhD in communication. That's all I do is talk. <laughs> so to me, those are the big things in recruiting. And also have the relationships that I forged in the AAU. So that to me shouldn't be a concern. Like can he get players? Like why wouldn't I be able to get players if an assistant coach at a mid-major that now takes a head job can get players? Why would I not be able to get players? You know, if you want to say, well, he's never coached in a college game. Okay, that's – I'll listen to you on that. Well, that's why you get a great staff around you, and then you go prove yourself. But to act like it's a far-fetched idea for a guy